0: This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week we were talking about an all-women's hospital, several of them in fact, in and around Europe during the First World War. It was a pioneering venture and we were recalling the exceptional women who dedicated their lives to science, technology, and a public career at a time when opportunities were scarce. It was really the beginning of a whole new institution. Today, too, we will be talking about the beginning of a new public institution. The Coffee House as a source of public opinion, conversations, debates, on contemporary questions today of course a coffee house is taken for granted as a public place but when and how did it begin and to what extent really was coffee drinking as such connected with the story of the coffee house as uh, a public place the story really began in um, the 17th and 18th century England. Take, for instance, this um, this quotation, rather an excerpt from a journal by Nade Word called London Spy. And here Nade Word was describing the scene in a coffee house in England around 1700. Initially, of course, he meant to mock those institutions. He didn't like it, or at least the kind of affairs, people, and their conduct going on in those places. And here's what Ward had to say, and I quote, there was a rabble going hither and thither, reminding me of a swarm of rats in a ruinous cheese store. Some came, others went. Some were scribbling, others were talking, some were drinking coffee, and some smoking, and some arguing. The whole place stank of tobacco, like the cabin of a birch. On the corner of a long table, close by the armchair, was lying a Bible. Beside it were ardenware peaches, long clay pipes, a little fire on the hearth and over it the huge coffee pot. Beneath a small bookshelf on which were bottles, cups, and an advertisement for a beautifier to improve the complexion was hanging a parliamentary ordinance. And that parliamentary ordinance really um, was about using bad language and against drinking. The walls were decorated with gilt frames, much as a smithy is decorated with horseshoes. In the frames were rarities, files of a yellowish elixir, favorite pills and hair tonics, packets of stuff, tooth powder made of coffee grounds, caramels and cough lozenges. Had not my friend told me that he had brought me to a coffee house, I'd have regarded the place as a big booth of a cheap jack. word was not impressed at all, as you can see from that long court. So the quality of the entertainment was not exactly to his satisfaction. Here's what he said. When I had sat there for a while and taken in my surroundings, I felt myself inclined for a cup of coffee, so Ward, the man uh, who was really looking to ridicule the vanities and vices of the town, was nonetheless captivated by the ambience of the coffee house. While the coffee house was not unique to the city, Nadeward came close to describing the elements which made the London coffee house Different from all others, and it was just these differences which accounted for the place of this establishment in the social history of London in 1652, fifty years ago, really. From this account by Nade Ward, a man called Pasca Rossi opened a coffee house in St. Michael's Alley, Cornhill, in London. Now, this guy, Rossi, was a native, really, of Smyrna. Smena was a port in western Turkey, where the young man had learned to prepare the beverage. Rossi had been brought to London by a merchant named Daniel Edwards. Now, Edward's friends uh, liked the unique brew so much that he allowed his servant, Rossi, to open the city's first coffee house. The venture was an immediate success, so much so that large numbers of coffee houses were established throughout the city in imitation of the first establishment. From the unpretentious beginning in Cornhill, the coffee house quickly became the center of London social life and one of the city's most remarkable social institutions. Now, coffee house itself was not unique to London. Francis Bacon noted in his Silva Silver Arm in 1627, and I quote, They have in Turkey a drink called coffee and they take it and sit at it in their coffee houses, which are like our taverns, unquote. Yet in London, the coffee house was unique um, in the extent to which it entrenched itself as an institution in the social, cultural, commercial and political life of the city. And I quote again, foreigners remarked that the coffee house was that which especially distinguished London from all other cities. Here I'm quoting Thomas Mickley from his History of England. And I quote again, that the coffee house was the Londoner's home and that those who wished to find a gentleman commonly asked not whether he lived in Street or Chancery Lane, but whether he frequented the Gratian or the Rainbow, the two most coffee houses, the most famous coffee houses, really, and unquote. the London coffee houses provided a gathering place where, for a penny admission charge, any man who was reasonably dressed could smoke his long clay pipe. Sip a dish of coffee, read the newsletters of the day, or enter into conversation with other patrons. At the period when journalism really was in its infancy and the postal system was unorganized and irregular, the coffee house provided a center of communication for news and information. Runners were sent round to the coffee house to report major events of the day. Um, such as, for example, uh, Victory in Battle or Political hevel And the newsletters and gazettes of the day were distributed chiefly in the coffeehouse. Uh, so coffeehouse soon enough emerged as uh, a major social institution in the city of London. Most of the establishments really functioned as reading rooms Uh, That's because the cost of newspapers and pamphlets was included in the admission charge. In addition, bulletins announcing sales, sailings, and auctions covered the walls of the establishments, providing valuable information to the businessman who conducted much of his business from a table in his favorite coffee house, much like um, the 21st century writers, and researchers, many of uh, whom actually walk from coffee houses these days, as opposed to a stable brick and mortar office. Naturally then this dissemination of news led to dissemination of ideas and the coffee house served as a forum for their discussion. Now, let me quote Trevelyan, the universal liberty of speech of the English nation, was the quintessence of coffeehouse life. Ah, unquote. The patrons of the coffeehouses agreed to conform to the strict rules of the establishments. According to the posted rules and orders of the coffeehouse, all men were equal in this establishment. And none had to give his place to a finer man. There was, therefore, a sort of equality. Anyone who swore was made to forfeit twelve pence. Swearing was not allowed, and the men who began a quarrel shall give each man a dish to atone the scene. Modlin lovers were forbidden, for all were expected to be brisk and talk, but not too much. Sacred things must be excluded from conversation, and the patrons could neither profane scriptures nor saucily wrong affairs of state with an irreverent tongue. Strict rules, huh? In many establishments, games of chance as well as cards were prohibited, and any wager was limited to five shillings. A sum which was to be spent in such good liquor as the house served. So you could not swear, you could not really criticize the state, you could not speak very strongly against religion and you could not gamble. These rules certainly served a good deal and soon enough, as I said, the coffee houses became a brisk space for exchange of public opinion. Even during the plague and the great fire that followed, Londoners continued to visit their favorite coffee houses. Neither Samuel Papers nor Daniel Defoe, for example, could be persuaded to abandon their daily visit to the coffee house during this dreadful time. But like every citizen, each of them was prudent. Patrons of the coffee houses were no longer prepared to talk freely with strangers, and they would approach even close acquaintances only after inquiring after their health and that of the family at home. So there was strong and well-entrenched decorum emerging into prominence. The plague and the fire did, of course, much to curtail the prosperity and popularity of the coffeehouse nonetheless, but only for a short time. Once these dangers were passed, the coffeehouse again assumed its place as the major social institution of its day, and it survived until very recently. Almost from their inception, the London coffee houses each began to develop its own specialized clientele. Now, each of these um, would soon be identified as the meeting place for a particular occupation, interest group or type of specialized activity. Let me offer some examples. By and large, uh, the type of clientele was determined by the area of London in which a given coffee house was located. Um, Coffee houses such as Lloyd's or Garravis were located in the area around the Royal Exchange. So they became the gathering places for businessmen of the city. Those such as the St. James and Cocoa Tree were located in Westminster. They became frequented by politicians. Many of the coffee houses near St. Paul's Cathedral were the haunts of clergymen and intellectuals who discussed theology and philosophy. So coffee houses became so identified with specific groups of interests that um, an early London newspaper, the Tatler, printed its stories under coffee house headings. So here's an example. Sir Richard Steele wrote in the first number of the newspaper in 1709, and I quote, All accounts of gallantry, pleasure, and entertainment shall be under the article of White's Chocolate House, poetry under the Will's Coffee House, learning under the title of Gratian, foreign and domestic news you'll have from St. James' coffee house. So here's really the story of England's love affairs with the coffee house as it started in the 17th and 18th century. Coffee, of course, uh, was originally cultivated in Ethiopia. It became a staple of first the Arabic and then the Turkish society. And it was um, imported into England, as you saw, by a man who was Italian and worked for a businessman in London. So this is a story fairly well known. But there's a problem. The problem with this account is that it confuses the institution of the coffee house with the commodity purportedly drunk there. Now, thanks to the diaries of men like um, Samuel Papers, and uh, philosopher Robert Hooke. We know that coffee houses really had become a feature of London's public life by 1660s. But this does not mean that they served much coffee. As a matter of fact, until the 18th century, the flow of bins into London, or in York, or Edinburgh, or Dublin, remained as erratic and restricted as into Amsterdam or Paris. So there was a problem really for the owners of the coffee houses. To stay in business, coffee houses needed to provide a range of consumables. Coffee alone was simply not enough. And indeed, the diaries of Pepys and Hook are uh, certainly crammed with coffee houses, but they hardly refer to coffee or coffee drinking. Samuel Pepys, for example, loved to record the foods and drinks he consumed and where he consumed them. But his only reference to coffee was in the parlour of his boss's wife, where, and I quote. My lady made us drink our morning draught there of several wines, but I drank nothing but some of a coffee, which was purely made with a little sugar in it, unquote. Robert Hooke was an inveterate lover of coffee houses who often visited his favorites, such as Garaway's and Jonathan's, at least once a day throughout the 1670s but his diary suggests that he only drank coffee for a 20-month period between May 1673 and December 1674, and he did so cautiously and intermittently. He finally gave up, as a matter of fact, after he drank sugared coffee that did not agree with his taste. Like his contemporaries, Robert Hooke was much more likely to ask for chocolate, brandy, beer, tobacco, or even asparagus in coffee houses than he was to ask for coffee. Other records confirm that just as London coffee houses served all manner of beverages, especially alcohol, so they were home to all manner of activities from gaming, prostitution and foreign language lessons to drunken fights and seditious plotting. In provincial cities like Norwich and Chester, the reality was slightly different but equally messy. Court dispositions and inventories show that uh, outside London, retailers did not open coffee houses per se, but coffee rooms inside buildings which were already functioning as uh, ale houses and inns. This really could be slightly more uh, salubrious or healthier than other rooms with more pictures and comfy chairs but they were clearly part of that larger alehouse or tavern. In 1718 in Chester, for example, 17-year-old Matthew Owens, an apprentice to the alehouse keeper Benjamin Davis, um, testified in court that, and I quote here, one Mr. Sylvester came into the kitchen called for his pint of drink and sitting down, began to talk of the said Mr. Parry and called him a scoundrel and a lousy dog and said that the said Mr. Parry being very near in the coffee room came out um, to him in the kitchen, So essentially, these were places where uh, people drank plenty of alcohol and broke into arguments, often heated political arguments. So we need a more accurate history of coffee in England. It recognizes that the rise of the coffee house and coffee were not one and the same thing. It also acknowledges that coffee houses and coffee rooms were certainly masculine places. But they were also at times hybrid spaces in which various food and drink accompanied many different activities much like the early coffee houses on the European continent. But this history also makes us rethink where the surge in demand for coffee really came from once imports increased in the early 18th century. Depositions and inventories once again provide an answer. Um, This too harks back to uh, Samuel Pepys encounter in coffee, with coffee in My Lady's parlor When coffee finally begins to be mentioned in court records from early 1700s, it's invariably in the context of women and men enjoying coffee at home. This at the very moment that coffee pots and cups begin to appear in the inventories of middle-class households servants in Great Yachtmouth felt that apprentice Samuel Pearson was getting too much liberty when his master and mistress started inviting him to drink a dish of coffee or tea or a glass of wine with them. In nearby Norwich, Amy Watson defended the frugality of her daughter by arguing she never brought diversions like uh, tea, coffee, chocolate, brandy, or wine, but only at such time as she laid in childbirth or was indisposed. And at a harvest fest in rural Suffolk, the gentle guests of the landowner, Mr. Broughton, drank tea and coffee in the parlour and walked sometimes in the garden while the harvest men got drunk in the kitchen. Now, all of this suggests that the English taste for coffee developed not so much in the masculine coffee house as the feminine perler. It suggests also that coffee was um, really not as intimately connected with the public sphere It was connected much more with domestic intimacies, respectability, and pleasures. Now, that really brings us to the end of this episode. We spoke about coffee and coffee houses in England in the 17th and 18th century, and we concluded that coffee and coffee houses in England did not rise at the same time, while coffee houses in the 17th and 18th century, fast turned into important places of discussing public affairs. the drinking of coffee as a practice, as a practice of leisure probably had a separate history which took place inside the homes of respectable middle classes slightly later in the 18th century. I'll be back with a similarly fascinating slice from the past next week in the next episode of History Chatter. Till then, this is Anirban. Looking forward to see you once again next week.